Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, Avoiding Infection, humans are naturally conditioned to avoid infection. It's disgusting. But as it turns out, this natural inclination might be the very thing that needs to be avoided in a church that's marked by mercy instead of sacrifice. Let's turn now to the first part of our series, Don't Drink the Water. I know it's not just the kids who are excited about candy. Anybody else get excited about candy around this time of year? We got a few no's. We got a few yes. Uh, It's true. Like, I love to see what my son brought home um, because I get first dibs. That's usually how it works. Like, you don't know what's good and bad candy yet. I'm going to take all the good stuff and go with that. Uh, so this is, this is absolutely uh, one of my favorite times of year. But speaking of candy, can anyone remember, and I won't give you this candy necessarily unless you just love it, but I'll give it to you next week. Can anyone remember what 1980 movie, 1980 is when it came out, movie made the Baby Ruth famous? Anybody remember? 1980, what's that? No, not saying a lot. No, is it a little bit older than that? A little bit older than that. Caddyshack. That is it. Caddyshack is the movie, right? Bill Murray is. It's this unforgettable scene. Now, if you have a weak stomach, I'm sorry that you have uh, lunch coming up, but just forgive me for this entire series, right? You'll get into it in just a minute. But Caddyshack in this movie, it's the famous duty scene. That's the scene. I, I didn't make that up. That's the name of the scene. You go look it up on YouTube right now. It's the duty scene. That's what it is. And there's two girls sitting on the edge of the pool, and uh, they take one of them takes a baby Ruth out. She starts to unwrap it, and the other one wants a bite. And a and a young punk teenage kid boy comes over, and he's like, "Give me a bite." And she's like, "No." And then all of a sudden, she's like, "Whoop!" And just throws the baby Ruth into the pool. Uh, and it goes into the pool behind you. And as soon and it's in perfect '80s fashion, the water it hits the water, and the Jaws theme song starts playing. Right. Like, that's what happened. And this, this baby Ruth is just floating all over the pool until it gets right in front of a young girl, and that's where everything breaks loose. She looks up from the water. It's duty! And, of course, mass panic breaks out across the entire pool. Everybody is trying to get out, except for that one teenage boy who is completely unassuming, and he's just swimming with his goggles underneath. Uh, everybody's yelling at him on the outside, and then he pops his head up, and again, the scene closes with him going, It's duty! And he gets out as fast as he can. Now, here's where it really gets gross. This is the point I want to make with this. They drain that pool out, right? Because you just can't pull that piece out, and the pool is fine. No, you have to drain it, you have to sanitize it, disinfect everything. And so they drain the bottom of the pool and he's just squeegeeing out the pool. A couple of, of wealthy individuals who own the place are on the sidelines. They're looking out there. Bill Murray reaches, he, he looks down, he squeegees in, he finds that lonesome candy bar, pulls his mask off, and then at that point, he reaches down on the bottom of the pool, picks it up, and goes, It's okay, here it is. It's no big deal. <laughs> and just bites it right in front. 
This is the height of explaining to us as a society the absurdity of our disgust responses. Now, some of you, me just telling that story, your stomach started turning like you have a gag reflex that's like really loose, right? And so you don't like listening to this. It's not comfortable for you. Our bodies physically respond. And, and I wanted to tell this particular scene because it highlights for us the absurdity of our disgust. Now, from a natural perspective, let me be clear. Our, this is our body's emotional response to protect us from outside reality for our lives that we get disgusted, right? In Bill Murray's case, had that actually been a floating fragment of fecal matter, then I could understand him throwing up on the other side of it. It would be disgusting. His body should push that out as quickly as he put it in, right? Humans are naturally conditioned to we avoid infection, we avoid it like because it's gross, it's dirty, it's disgusting is the phrase that we'll use a lot. And here's, here's what I would suggest. Disgusting things are things that we avoid in our lives. We push away from them as best we can. And most of the time it's for our good. In fact, I can't make this stuff up. I was writing my sermon earlier, at least one part of my sermon, I was writing it in my backyard. I put Eliza down on the ground in front of me on a blanket she grabbed some grass and some leaves, and she started eating them. And while I was writing this sermon, what did she do? Blech! Put it all back all over the place, right? It was a disgust response. She put it in. It wasn't good for her. She put it out. And I'm glad she put it out, right? Because it was bad for her. So on, on the surface, this is good. Generally speaking, this is a healthy response we have to danger, but not always, it's not always a healthy response that we have. And the importance of, and that's the reason for the importance of this series, and it's actually why I started with Caddyshack. Think about the Caddyshack, for example, because it tells us perfectly what's going on here. Disgust isn't actually always grounded in reality, right? And, and, and in fact, or, or in what's real, and in fact, as you think about that Caddyshack example, to use the phrase that Dan Ariel de, uh, described this as, disgust is, is rationally or predictably irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. That was a candy bar floating in a pool, right? And yet in the midst of that, this candy bar that's floating around, something that we would all eat at, at Halloween, you know, this baby Ruth, we have a disgust response that rolls out of it. So it's, it's not really grounded in what's real. It's just an emotion that we start to experience sometimes that triggers it. And so you can experience disgust even if you're not threatened, and you can experience disgust even if it's not a threat to you personally. You can see someone else engaging in the activity and still be disgusted. The lady on the side of the pool watches Bill Murray, who's really the one who should be disgusted, eat that baby Ruth, and she passes out. All right, and this is how disgust works. And I'm not going to get into all the details about how you know, that can kind of spawn from one person to the next. But you know this. You, you've seen this happen. Disgust is something that we can share, even if we are not personally threatened by that. And, and at this point... Because I've gone on long enough, I'm sure all of you are like, why are we talking about poop and this stuff in the context of church? And here's, here's the reason why. Let me just sort of break this down. This is exactly why I think that we need to be in this before I destroy your lunch plans any further. I want us to think about this element of disgust and this emotion for just a minute because it affects every area of our life. Think about the decisions that you've already made this morning, right? Decisions to brush your teeth, put on deodorant, shower, right? Spray a little Febreze around the house. All of these are decisions that you have made to avoid disgust, to avoid the BO, the halitosis, all of those types of things. So disgust definitely has a bodily component that you engage in and that you will be uh, kind of re responding to all the time. 
but it's an emotional response. And it's emotional response that spreads beyond your bodies, spreads beyond what's happening to your bodies. In fact, it affects our social, our moral, and even our religious lives. Richard Beck, and, and I, he's been a great reading partner for me through this, he's wrote a book called Unclean. If you ever want to kind of unpack this even further, I highly suggest picking up his book. But here's what he says. He says that from dawn until dusk, disgust regulates much of and so I want to stay away so that, I don't, so that I don't get dirty, so that I can avoid being in that same space, having that smell, whatever that may be. And so I'm going to push away. That's a protection of my physical body, but it takes on a social dimension. Right? Think untouchables for just a minute. Because what happens when a group of people who we've claimed to be unhygienic gets constantly pushed away as a society? This is what happens. We start with the disgust response, which is to protect me, but then we start disgusted at what you see on the news. I, you know, one of the, the clearest examples of this for me was a few years back when there was chemical weapons poured out in Syria, and they showed all these images of children who'd been attacked by the chemical weapon in their face. They were just crying and, and drooling, and, and their bodies were mangled from the chemical weapons attack. And I remember watching this, physically my stomach was turned. This response that was taking place inside of me. Now, if I had been in Syria at the time, I should have experienced disgust directly because my body would have been trying to protect me from what's going on. But I'm thousands of and I'm experiencing that shared disgust that they have, and I'm also pushing it into a moral realm because now I have judgment about the people who threw those bombs. Right? So now it's taken on a moral reality where I'm pushing it. And there's just a short step away, once we have that moral dimension, we're just a short step away from the religious dimension that I would describe. For example, one of the most common ways of understanding sin, we use this language all the time, sin is an infection. Sin is a disease. We, we talk about it that way constantly. In fact, we see images like that in Scripture. And as, as many of you know, we, we try to stay away from infection, don't we? We avoid it. This is the world that we're living in right now. We're outside because we're trying to avoid a virus. We're trying to avoid infection. Uh, but earlier some of, you, some of you know that. That is like, if you ever want to be disgusted, that's the place to go. I saw, I'm, I'm not making this up, or I don't know if the lady was making it up. There was a lady who since 1975. It had not been touched since 1975. That thing was that big around. It was huge, right? So everything within me, I'm seeing this infection on the side of her face. You guys okay up here? Everybody's good? I'm <laughs> just hearing the responses. Oh, what are we doing, right? Why? Because physiologically, I want to avoid infection at all costs. I want to stay away from it. It grosses me out to see that. Now, if that's the case with this infection that we see, once we start to imagine and associate sin with infection, imagine the emotional connection that's made. Think about how we connect that. In fact, some of you either have experienced this in the life of the church where you have felt the, the, uh, the disgust from other people because of the ways that you participated in sin. You've seen this happen to other people where people are disgusted by their behaviors and so they get ostracized and pushed aside. Right? This is what happens in the context of the church. Whenever we see people ostracized and pushed away, there's a response that's taking place to disgust. And so we have all these categories that we create, and that's exactly why I think we need a series like this, because 
this tendency to entangle our disgust with all of these different elements, it's not new to the 21st century, but it does pose a new threat in this century. It constantly creeps up over and over again. And there's at least two reasons that I want to give you for why this is important. Why are disgust responses dangerous to the Christian faith? The first reason is this. Disgust causes us to create boundaries. Now, first you're like, well, boundaries are good. And there is a, there's an element of boundaries that are important and that we should live into. Physically, I'm not going to put something disgusting in my mouth, right? Maybe a maggot or something like that. It's not going past these lips right here. That's a boundary that this is not crossing. You're not going to do that. If you do happen to get one past it and it goes down the throat, there's another backup boundary, right? And it ain't getting past that. Like, that's just reality. I have boundaries, and boundaries are good to a certain extent. We're quick to, but but when it comes to the spiritual realm, what happens is when we create these boundaries, we become the ones who are quick to say who's in and who's out. We become the ones in our faith who draw the line. And we say, who's going to cross that line and be in or who's going to be outside? And of course, you know, the boundary keeping or the boundary making naturally leads to the second danger. So the first danger, disgust causes us to create boundaries. But disgust also results in expulsion, right? If you have anything disgusting slip past the lips, there's going to be an expulsion on the other side. That's what happened for Eliza earlier this week. But that's what happens in the context of our churches. Some of you have been in environments where people have been expelled from the church. Right, historically, we can think about this in, in grand terms where people have been ostracized and put aside from the church, but we don't really have to think grand and historical. We can just think about the different people in our lives who have been kicked out of churches. You've seen it. And the reason that that happens is because a boundary has been made. A person has decided to cross that boundary. Others have noticed it, and they've expelled them on the other side of it. There's an expulsion that takes place. And these are the dangers that arise within the context of disgust and our disgust uh, responses. And the most terrifying part of all of this, for me at least, is that it's only after the fact that we start to discover that the things that we thought were moral are not really moral at all. In the moment when you're living in that moment of disgust, expulsion seems like the form of righteousness. That's why today we could look back on things like the Salem witch trials and be like, that's disgusting. I can't believe Christians would do that. Yet if we were standing in the context of that society, we may have been guilty of the same things because we may have held those same disgust responses. And if we're going to live into a world where we're guided by our disgust response and just what turns us off, then we're going to do some damage that we didn't mean to do. We're going to be wrapped up in those things in the same way. And as I think about all the stories of Scripture and the way that we can kind of look at Scripture and navigate Scripture to help us kind of parse out the two options before us as people of faith, I wanted to turn to the conversion story of Levi or Matthew that Hayden read just earlier from Matthew chapter 9. This is that story in Scripture, and of course, it's told to us by Matthew himself. Matthew is the one who writes the book of Matthew, right? I mean, that kind of makes sense. But Matthew gets the opportunity to tell us his conversion story in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, there in verse 9, he talks about the way that he was sitting down at work one day and in walks Jesus. And here's what happens. Let me just read to you this verse by verse. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, I'll pause right there. Unless this is April 15th at H&R Block, Matthew is the person in charge of this tax booth, right? He's not walking up to someone just getting their taxes done. He's walking up, and it needs to be said, he's walking up to a tax collector at this moment. When he walks up to the booth where the tax collector is sitting, he simply says this to him. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Now, at this point, this is not problematic for those around us. Matthew gives us the idea, the details that make this story dramatic. He's sitting at a tax booth. 
He is the tax collector. Jesus comes up, says, follow me. Now, it didn't bother anyone in Jesus's network, the Pharisees, Sadducees, or any other religious group around Jesus, that he would ask Matthew to follow him, as long as Matthew gets up, follows him away from the boundary line that's created. Right? If he can get outside of the boundary line that the others have made, Matthew's great. So the starting point for Jesus, the Pharisees, all of those, that's not the problem. Jesus and the Pharisees can all agree at this point that your past, your starting point are not the problem. What they disagree with, and this is going to come out in the story in just a minute, is how Matthew can become a part of the community. In what way can Matthew become a part of the community that Jesus is creating? And this is exactly, frankly, where a lot of Christians disagree today. And I'll get to that part in just a minute. But let's continue in the story. In verse 10, it goes on. Look at the difference that, that is created. Matthew follows Jesus, but look where he follows him too. In verse 10, as he sat, this being Jesus, as he sat at dinner in the house. This is Matthew's house. Right? The, the NRSV doesn't spell it out as Matthew's house, but some of the other versions you might read, they'll say it very directly. As he sat down at Matthew's house for dinner, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. He went back to Matthew's place, and this is important. He didn't expel Matthew or Matthew's friends from connection with him. And this is the vile and disgusting act that the Pharisees observed. He calls him a leader, or himself a leader of the righteous people, and this is what he's doing? Now, before, you know, and before we side with Jesus and we demonize the Pharisees, let me explain exactly what here. The Pharisees have a faith that is very strong, a very fervent faith that they're living into, but here's the type of faith they have. They have what I would describe as a bounded view of faith. Now, what is a bounded view of faith? A bounded view of faith, imagine this, God is the centerpiece. God rests at the center, but somewhere out from God, and we won't describe exactly how far it is away from God, there is a line that gets drawn around God. And in a bounded view of faith, what happens is an individual needs to walk towards God, and once they cross that boundary line, they're in. Right? We look for the moment where we can say very clearly, very articulately, you've crossed the line, you are now in with God. That's a bounded view of faith. That's this view historical reasons as to why they would want that, why they should live into that, but they've created this bounded view of faith. And what happens in the context of a bounded view of faith is when purity is the aim, which purity is, I want to get across that boundary, I want to be pure, I want to be away from anything that is impure. When purity is the aim, boundaries have to be maintained. They have to. Because if I let anything that is impure across that boundary, it's no longer a sacred zone. You see this in the context of the ancient temple, right? They would not allow anyone into the Holy of Holies lest they be pure, lest they be ritualistically pure. Why? Because anything impure that comes into the space has now made the entire space impure. And so when, when purity becomes your aim, boundaries have to be maintained. And I'm going to side with the Pharisees for just a minute. Boundaries are easy. Right? Boundaries are predictable. Boundaries make me comfortable when I think about it. They're manageable. They're predictable. Expectations can be managed. I know if I'm good with you or not good with you based off of what, is, what the boundary is. And I know exactly what I can do and what I cannot do in, in, in sense of achieving a relationship with God. And let me say this as clearly as I can. I know there is comfort and peace in that. I feel the comfort and peace in that. I feel the comfort and peace in having a boundary established. There's a coziness that rests with that and it, that is in the context of what's happening here. But we find comfort in the clarity of this demarcation because we have or because we know where we stand. And I think Jesus knows that. 
Jesus understands that. He was born and raised with this mentality. He gets it. But when he shows up at Matthew's house, he wants to make sure that as a people of faith, that we don't confuse coziness with righteousness. That we don't get in our head that becoming comfortable and cozy in our faith and where we're walking is the righteous things to do. The Pharisees, they, were, they weren't comfortable with where Jesus was. They weren't comfortable with where he was sitting. And what they did is they equated that with unrighteousness. They equated what Jesus was doing with unrighteousness in that moment. Jesus had crossed the boundary that tells us what's right and what's wrong. And that's disgusting. And Jesus is wrong for doing it. He's wrong for crossing that boundary and he's wrong for doing that. And here is Jesus' response to all of that. When he heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick do. We're the helpers And as helpers and healers, we cannot stay on this side of the purity barrier, right? If those need help, those who need healing are on the other side of that barrier, how do you think they're going to get well, right? We have to cross the barrier to be with them. We have to cross the barrier to be in that environment to help. And he points us back at this point to one of their prophets. And I love what he does here. It's brilliant. He actually points the Pharisees back to someone that they well respected, Hosea. And he looks at this verse from Hosea chapter six, verse six, or chapter six, verse six, He introduces them not to something new, but he brings up something to them that's forgotten. And here's what he says. He says, go and learn what this means because you quote it all the time. You read it constantly. Your prophet Hosea said it. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call... Now, here's the point that he's trying to make. Sacrifice in this this environment is the ultimate boundary-marking ritual. Right? You can't get much more clear than sacrifice in terms of a boundary. It's either dead or alive. It's either spotless or it's not. Right? This is the boundary marking ritual of all rituals. You know how to do it. You know where to do it. You know when to do it. You know what to offer when you need mercy. Or the other word, that the, the word probably is better interpreted there. It's hesed is the Hebrew word. Persistent, persistent love. A love that shows up all over the place. That's what God wants. He doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your love. He doesn't want you to do things for him. Hosea is saying, he's saying he wants you to be like him. He doesn't want you to just look like him or to walk towards him. He wants you to be like him. Right now, and Hosea made this very clear. He says, look, you've got a form of love. I'm going to admit it. You have it. I know you do. You've got a form of love. But guess what? It's not like God's love. He describes this in beautiful terms. He says, your love is more like this. It's like the morning dew. As soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. That's your love. That's the love that you're living into. It's like the morning cloud. It's like the dew that goes away early in the morning. And when Jesus is drawing off of this ancient wisdom, he's saying, you're worried about the line that needs to be crossed. I'm going to tell you a better way. Why don't you start focusing on the one that you need to become like? Why don't you shift your eyes just a little bit? Don't don't look at the line. Look at the one you need to be looking at at the center. Why don't you focus on that one? That's the better option. You don't, you don't need to worry about the sacrifice and where you're crossing or not. And, and why would he say that? Why would Jesus be invested in this? Because Jesus is not living within a bounded view of, live, of faith. Jesus is living with a center point of faith, center point view. And this is very different. This, the center point view, unlike the bounded view, is not worried about enforcing boundaries or creating boundaries or anything like that. He's not looking at the boundaries at all. He's looking at the center. Because in the center, and this is interesting, in the center is the only one who's actually righteous, right? We have all these images and imaginations of what righteousness would look like by creating our ba- boundaries and our barriers. But if we just look at the center, 
Oh, you don't have to guess what righteousness is. You don't have to guess what holiness is because you're looking at it. You don't have to guess what mercy is or love or any of those things. You don't have to, you don't have to create something. You're looking at it. And Jesus is in this place where he's saying, you know what? I need you to take your eyes off the boundaries and I need you to lift your eyes to the one, the only one who is righteous. I want you to become like that one. I want you to become like the one who is all righteous. And when you do, you discover that, that you can step across the line from time to time. And in fact, stepping across the line, that boundary line, back into the disgusting realm probably looks more like mercy than staying inside. It looks a little bit more like God to step outside of that line than to stay right inside that line. And the question is not, am I across the boundary or not? No, no, no. And I, and I know that's a, that's a common question, right? Can I do this and still be saved? Can I do this and still be a Christian? I get it. Those are questions that come up a lot. I used to ask all those questions in my life. The question is no longer, am I saved or not? But how much do I look like the one who I'm supposed to look like? Am I becoming a little bit more like him every single day? When you do this, you won't miss the target, right? You'll stay right on course. You'll stay right. It's like, a, it's like driving a car. I remember one of the first things they taught me whenever I was driving a car, and I was terrible at it, was to look like a quarter mile in front of you. You remember this lesson, right? And what do we want to do? We look right down here, right? And I, oddly enough, looking right at the hood of the car, right where we are to try and stay between the, the mayo and the mustard, it always pulls us off. But if we can look ahead, if we can keep looking ahead, then we'll, we'll maintain our course. And it's the same way in our relationship with God. Even though we're tempted to sort of look down to see where the line is that we're crossing, God's saying, why don't you lift your head just a little bit and look back at me? Look to me to determine exactly where you should walk and where you should move. And I know it's not comfortable to look at the mark. I know it's more, it's more comfortable to look down at, the, at the, the mark than it is to look up. But a series like this is important because here's what happens. And this, again, as faithfully, graciously as I can be to talk about the state of the church at large right now, a lot of times what happens is faithful disciples are more tempted by what feels right than what actually is right. right? And, and so in that context, when, when it just feels right to do it this way, we're not really asking the question, well, is that righteous? We're not really digging into the depths of discovery whether or not that's the righteous thing to do or if it just feels right, right? It feels right to not eat that baby Ruth. That's exactly what it feels. That feels right. That feels right. But it's, it's not logical. That's a baby Ruth. Bill Murray had it right. You should eat that sucker up, right? I'm going to bring you all baby Ruths next week. thing that's in love with the real, not with the ideal. There's an ideal for your life. I'd, I'd love to see you this way, or I'd, you know, maybe your spouse. You'd love to see them in this ideal space to do the right things all the time. But if you've been married a long time, or, or, or if you just are in love with someone, you realize that true love is being in love with the real, not the ideal. That you continue to tolerate and to live with the person with all of their ugliness and all of their disgust and all of those things because you're in love with the real. And sometimes I think we forget that this is God's love for us. This is the mercy of God for you. God, does, God doesn't just love the ideal form of you. I mean, he wants you to become more and more like him every single day. There's no doubt about that. He, he wants you to grow in grace and to become holier in your life because he knows that's the best move for you. So, so don't misunderstand me, but, but God is in love with the real you, the you who is right where you are. And this is the world that God loves in general. God loves all of his creation in this way. And as we close today, we're going to sing this song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And 
it's an incredible reminder for us all that God is faithful to the real, not just the ideal. To the real you who struggles to say the right things, to the real you who struggles to perform the right actions, to the real you who struggles with your spouse and your children and making the right statements and making the right moves all the time, that real you, that's, that's who God loves. And that's who God wants to have a relationship with. And that's the God who's asking you to lift your head just a little bit and look at Him. Don't look at all the boundaries that others might have created. Look at Him. Find your righteousness grounded in Him. And live into that. Walk in that. Explore that reality every day of your life. This is what mercy looks like. And when you start to experience that personally from God... You can start to give that to others in your own life. You can start to love the real, not just the ideal of those around you. Would you stand with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness that is made clear to us and the actions and activities of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. For moments like this where we are reminded of your great mercy for us and reminded the way that your faithfulness continues on and on and on for us all. Help us, Father, to lift our heads today, to look back towards you, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who claims us and has a steadfast, unending love for us through all generations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.